This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In 1976, Walter Murphy put together this disco adaptation of some passages of the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He called it a fifth of Beethoven, and it hit number one when it was included in the soundtrack for the movie Saturday Night Fever. Also a hit was this song, which was based on a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach and which was a top ten hit for the band Apollo 100 in 1972. But although these two classically inspired songs were big hits, one take on a piece of classical music may linger, annoyingly, in our minds more than any other. Oh, I wish I were already there instead of here playing this song. Oh, I would have a big chocolate shake, a cheeseburger, and also, whoops, and also fries. I don't know about you, but that ad has been stuck in my head since the mid-1980s. But what about more traditional takes on classical music? You know, the real stuff. Sure, you hear a lot of classical music at weddings and commercials and movies and so on. Music we'd likely call classical is still being written by the likes of Philip Glass. But it does seem safe to say that classical music isn't exactly the music of our time. It doesn't speak to us as a society in the way that, say, rock and roll does. For people who love classical music, people like my guest today on Fordham Conversations, that's something of a mystery, and it's something they'd like to change. Lawrence Kramer is a professor of English and music at Fordham University, and he is the author of a new book called, simply, Why Classical Music Still Matters. Lawrence Kramer joined me in the studio last week to talk about just that. Lawrence Kramer, welcome. Thank you. So you have written this book, which is called Why Classical Music Still Matters. Tell me why it was important to you that people think classical music still matters. Well, at one level, for the most practical of all possible reasons, I make my living from the stuff. So it would be nice to think that I wasn't entirely wasting my time. But venal motives like that aside, um, anytime people talk about classical music these days, and anytime you read about it in the newspapers... What you're likely to read is how much trouble it's in. As a matter of fact, the Times just the other day reported that a number of newspapers and magazines around the country, including New York Magazine, um, were cutting or cutting back on their classical music reviewers. So there seems to be a general feeling that classical music in the United States is in some kind of trouble. The real situation is actually much more complicated than it looks. Um, Classical music um, is at one level in a certain kind of trouble. It's having trouble getting public outlets. It's not as prominent in the media as it used to be. And, of course, there's the whole very complicated problem of music reproduction, the the impending death of the CD as a format, the whole question um, of Internet downloads, the question of who will produce recordings of music. On the other hand, there's more classical music around today than there ever was in the history of the world. And if you want it, you can easily get access to it. Tower Records closes, everybody weeps, and then you immediately click on Amazon.com, who has picked up the slack right away. So the first question to ask is, you know, why are we asking why classical music still matters? And I think that's the, the heart of the question. Um, anybody who watches television hears classical music on commercials, and people know how to decode it. They know how to make sense of what they're, what they're listening to. But the problem that the music has nowadays, and I think this has been true 
increasingly for the last 20 or 25 years, is that people don't really know what to do with it. They don't feel quite comfortable listening to it. They can't quite connect it to their everyday experience. They don't have a cultural context in which it makes a lot of sense. All of those things didn't used to be so. But as we all know, the world has changed dramatically and rapidly, um, and classical music has had a little bit of trouble keeping up. So for someone who loves this music and also wishes for it a future as you know, rich and as satisfying as its past has been, some kind of suggestion, some kind of contribution to public discourse about it seemed like a good idea. I tend to think of classical music as like anything that was recorded prior to, I don't know, 1960. What What is it that you're talking about uh, in this book when you talk about classical music? Yeah, that's an excellent question because the term is uh, ambiguous and in some sense it's a commercial catch-all. I'm talking specifically about music written for instruments with or without voice, but not for the theater, and designed primarily to uh, present you with the opportunity to absorb yourself in listening to it while you're not engaged in doing anything else, except maybe playing it, because, of course, playing is also a form of listening. Now, what people don't often know is that music of that kind has not existed forever. In fact, it hasn't existed for very long. And people really didn't be able to write it in earnest, particularly with a large audience in mind, until the middle of the 18th century, which, of course, in historical time is only yesterday. So very roughly speaking, classical music, as I'm using the term, um, extends from Bach and Handel to yesterday. And of course, people are still very much writing in this mode and doing a very interesting job of it. Now, that doesn't fit the commercial category of classical music, which includes opera. I'm not talking about opera, which is a whole separate issue, and by the way, is doing rather well. And I'm not talking uh, about uh, what they call early music, music written in the 17th, 16th centuries or earlier. So it's this body of, of two and a half or three centuries of music that I'm concentrating on. And it happens to be that body of music, which, if you are a classical music fan, is the big backbone of the musical repertory. It's the music you listen to. It's the music written by all the big names. Now, when you say yesterday, just to clarify, you're referring to the day before today as opposed to the John Lennon, Paul McCartney song yesterday, right? Um, yes, although that's a, that's a classic popular song, to be sure, but that's not what I mean. Uh, no, I mean the classical music is, of course, still being written and written in great abundance in a bewildering variety of styles. So it's a contemporary form as well as a historical form. Now, you in your book talk about classical music after September 11th. Tell me what you say about that. Well, one of the motives for writing this book was my experience of classical music after September 11th. I mean, like everybody else, I was in a state of shock and dismay, and I couldn't help but notice that many people around the country were staging classical concerts with some kind of commemorative dimension to them, and they were being very well attended, and people were very moved by them. And I had to ask myself, well, all right, I mean, in the normal course of events, these people would not necessarily go to classical music. But in this moment of trauma and crisis, a lot of people, not everybody by any means, but a lot of people found that classical music was, at least for a few moments, a means on the one hand of 
composing, as it were, their emotional lives and connecting with other people. So I wanted to investigate as openly and as sincerely as I could the sources of that power, which was a little unexpected even to me. I mean, classical music is the first thing that I'd think of, but, but not necessarily find that sentiment widely shared. So I wanted to ask questions about, you know, what the sources of the power of this music to, to move and to uh, create community might be. And to do that, I, I think I had to cut through a lot of the, the standard cliched ways of thinking about this music and its relation to society and culture and its relation to other music. So what do you think the problem is in the way that classical music is perceived by the general public today? Okay, there are a whole number of problems, uh, and they, they begin with primary school education. There is considerable evidence to demonstrate that children who are exposed to classical music at an early age tend to develop a lifelong interest in the music. They also, by the way, tend to do better in school. Uh, make of that what you will. Um, but the problem that has emerged over the past couple of decades, and this is a very well-known thing, I'm not telling any, giving you any big new revelations, is that when school districts run into financial trouble, as they do constantly, the first things to go tend to be the arts programs. Both the music programs and programs in visual arts have been cut widely and rarely restored. So several generations of young people have been brought up with no preliminary exposure to this music. And why is that important? Well, it's important partly, as I say, because early exposure to the music, as early exposure to anything, you know, science, what you, what you will, tends to generate an interest. But in addition, if you grow up in complete indifference to our musical heritage, if you don't know about it because nobody's bothered to tell you, then when you reach your teenage years or your adulthood, um, you are likely to find it when it's presented to you as something remote, esoteric, disconnected from life. And since a lot of this music comes to us in the form of a historical legacy, unless we have you know, some way to connect to that legacy, it's going to be inert. And music is different from other forms of cultural expression in that regard. I mean, let me make a comparison. I mean, I am a professor here at Fordham, and uh, I actually teach most of my classes in the English department. If I teach a play written in 5th century Athens, if I teach Antigone, let's say, not only do I find that a good many of my students have read it in high school, but even if they haven't, they connect to it immediately. And the reason they connect to it immediately is that it's part of a tradition of narratives in the Western world that's still alive. You can see plots similar to what goes on in Antigone when you go to the movies. And it is, therefore, easy to build the bridge. When it comes to music, those bridges are not there, or at least they're not widely known. So the music appears to have a kind of mystique about it, to be esoteric. And that's very unfortunate because uh, it's anything but esoteric. It is as immediate and direct and straightforward as any music ever has been. But it needs to be positioned so that people can feel free to approach it on their own terms and to connect it to the familiar and perhaps challenging, less familiar forms of their own experience. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. 
I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this week with Lawrence Kramer about the state of classical music in America today. Kramer is a professor of English and music at Fordham, and he is the author of the new book, Why Classical Music Still Matters. It's out now from University of California Press. Let's return to our conversation. Now, you've said that classical music was not always sort of the upscale, dusty kind of thing that it's perceived as being now. Tell me the story of the rise and fall of classical music as a, a popular style. Okay. Um, it's a complicated story, and uh, I'm, we'll be simplifying necessarily, but here's the gist. Up until the end of the 19th century, there really was not a very firm distinction between different genres of music. In fact, one of the accomplishments of the century, and it's, it's one of which I have mixed feelings about, is to establish a certain body of music as classical, that is to say, um, as a group of artworks that get reproduced in time, rather than kind of competing in the market of the moment. In the United States, there was a rapid development at the turn of the 20th century of various forms of popular entertainment media. And the most uh, significant of these were the vaudeville theater and the uh, cinema. Vaudeville became an extraordinarily popular form of musical entertainment and helped make the idea of publicly going out and enjoying musical performance something that just everybody could do. And that was important from a democratic point of view because although classical music was not specifically addressed to the well-to-do in the 19th century, they were the ones who could most likely afford the concert tickets. And it was expensive. Classical music is expensive. It's expensive to produce. So there's this great democratizing surge that came out of the popular theater. And then, you know, vaudeville eventually became Tin Pan Alley, became Broadway. And as soon as the recording technology was available, which happened around the turn of the century, the possibility for the dissemination of music to a mass audience inexpensively came along with it. The cinema helped as well. We always think of the first 30 years of cinema as silent cinema. But, of course, the movies were always accompanied by music. So the movies became a very important means um, of disseminating music also. And at the same time, radio was being developed. So there was this extraordinary explosion of media in which music could be heard, in which music could become popular. And two things happened during the 20th century. One, classical music had a very good ride because for about the first 50-odd years of the century, a good portion of the music played on the radio and sold in record stores and so forth was what we call classical music. As the century wore on, however, that changed. And it changed because as the media became more and more mass, as the audiences became national, as more and more money was involved the programmers simply became more conservative and they wanted to make sure that they would recoup their investment, so they went to the surefire bets. Also, another important thing that happened in the early 1950s that I think had an influence on the development of mass audiences for popular music was the invention, as it were, or of rock and roll or the emergence of rock and roll out of rhythm and blues because the idiom of, of rock and roll which is sort of the ancestor of most popular forms today, is quite different from the idiom of classical and classical-inspired scores, including film scores and so forth, so that the, the rhetoric of popular music changed in the mid-20th century. 
And that became a problem because people couldn't connect the rhetoric of the music that they heard all around them with the rhetoric of these kind of classically oriented scores. So if you track what happens to film scoring from the 1950s through to about 2000, it's very interesting. Fewer and fewer movies use the kind of classical orchestral scoring that traditional Hollywood movies used to do. And then sometimes, as in the case of the John Williams scores for the Superman films or the Star Wars films, they're deliberately nostalgic. This big orchestra sound is archaic. And people can perceive it as such. It's kind of funny that the music for the events long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away should seem old-fashioned, but nonetheless, that's what happened. So there are these very powerful cultural forces which caused a separation of classical from popular styles. It was irresistible. It was irreversible. It unfolded over maybe 100 years or so. And you know that's the situation in which we live today. The problem that that presents for people like me or for people who, you know, who like me, love classical music, is that it creates the misimpression that there is something arcane, mystical, strange, formidable, highfalutin, snobbish about the classics. People, when when they wrote it, were just writing music, (laughs) expressing things the best way they knew how, and they actually knew how to do it pretty well. We need to get back to the point where one feels as free to listen to work by Beethoven or Bartok as to the latest pop group. So at what point were people using classical music in a really, you know, a genuinely populist way, and what were they doing with it, and also how do they use it now? Well, what they used to do a lot of is play it. Until those technological developments that I spoke about, one of the things you would find in almost every respectable middle-class household was a piano. And people studied the piano. They would play it constantly. They would have chamber music in their house that people would come over with, you know, their violins and their violas and their cellos, and they'd play. So the music became an instrument for social relations, for connecting at a deep emotional level rather than on uh, a more uh, conventional social level. It was a way of bringing people together in an expressive context. And I think that that is indeed what the music is still good for. Uh, When you gather together with people, and maybe we don't play it that much anymore because that kind of musical amateurism did tend to disappear. But even so, when you get a bunch of classical music fans together, they talk to each other about the music in exactly the same way uh, that jazz aficionados or people who like rap talk about the music. They use it to communicate with each other and to ground their relationships in, you know, something that is expressively alive. Classical music is very good at that, and it's got a vast palette of expressive devices which enable one to make use of it in that way. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On today's show, Navigating New York Without Sight, Stories of Blind New Yorkers. That's Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Fordham English and Music professor Lawrence Kramer. He's the author of the new book, Why Classical Music Still Matters. It's out now from University of California Press. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. For those of us who aren't really that into classical music but might hear it, say, in a 
I'm thinking maybe of a fancy feast commercial for cat food or Mm -hmm. maybe in a commercial for Mercedes Benz or in one of the other sort of places where you hear classical music um, in a popular context like TV or movies or something like that. What does it what does it put out when you hear classical music? Oh, what I does see. it well, say? Yeah, the question is, uh, is a good one, and it's, the answer is unfortunate. What it signifies in those contexts is a pile of cliches associating classical music with wealth, privilege, class in the in the colloquial sense of the term, fineness, discrimination, everything that sets you apart from the hoi polloi. I mean, if you drive a Mercedes, you should be listening to classical music and let the popular music be for those who are driving the Chevys. It's a very bad use of the music, but it isn't different, of course, from the use of rock or jazz or any other musical idiom. They're all, when they're used to sell, you know, music is extraordinarily malleable, and it will sell whatever you ask it to sell. Are there qualities that classical music has that are inherent to it that make it different than, say, rock or, I don't know, bebop? Yes, but in answering that, I have to say that these distinctions aren't absolute. But a couple of things that classical music is characterized by. One is that dramatic impulse. You know, all music is expressive. That's why we like it. But classical music um, is not only expressive, but it tends to investigate in a very immediate way the dramatic implications of its own expressiveness. Listening to a piece of classical music is, in a way, like absorbing yourself in a theatrical performance or in a story. So that's one dimension that classical music has that makes it different from others. The second dimension that classical music has that, again, tends to differentiate it from other music, not not absolutely, is that classical music is fully notated and written down in scores. Now, this is true of most classical music. Every note is written down, and therefore what a classical piece is is music that is meant to be reinterpreted every time it is performed. It's not like, um, for example, a popular song, which is written on the one hand to be recorded, and you may go back to the recording again and again, but the recording never changes. Or, on the other hand, written to be adapted, modified, transformed, varied by the singer who's performing it at the moment. We don't you know, preserve the notation we don't preserve the, the harmony and the exact melody in popular music. But in classical music, that's exactly what you do. Or likewise, if you can contrast it to jazz. Jazz is, for the most part, improvised. Jazz, in a certain sense, is music that can only be heard once. And again, you can take the recording home and listen to it again and again, but it's not the same thing. So classical music is, for the most part, not improvised. Therefore, what do you get with classical music? You get something which has no fixed form, even though every note has been specified. It has no fixed meaning, even though everything has been written down. So it becomes something that you achieve a kind of intimacy with, a familiarity with, a kind of friendship with. But the the particular quality of the classical piece is dependent upon that need to reinterpret, to reperform the same thing differently each time. As a result of this notated reality that is classical music, when you absorb yourself in classical pieces, you connect yourself to uh, history in a very live and immediate way because the feeling of history, not as a dead thing, not as something over and done with, but as something which is in the process of being created, 
is right there built in to the listening experience. Classical pieces have histories. And that is, I think, another very distinctive thing about them. Why do people think that if babies listen to Mozart, they get smarter? What's special about this kind of music that people would think that? Absolutely nothing. Um, They did uh, this odd little experiment which demonstrated that listening to Mozart made you smarter by the standards of the experimenter. Uh, And I got a great deal of play in the media, and it's still around. They call it the Mozart effect. Well, it turns out that it lasts about 10 minutes. And actually, unfortunately, listening to Mozart will not make you smarter. Why would people think that, though? Uh, Because the music is reputed to be highly patterned in a way that other musics aren't. Uh, I think that's false. I think that all music is based on fairly elaborate patterns. The patterns often exist in different dimensions, so that... For example, in Mozart, the structure of melody and harmony might be much more elaborately patterned than you would find in a popular song or a rock song, let's say. But the rhythm, on the other hand, of the popular piece in any given instance might be much more highly patterned than you find in Mozart. So the presence or absence of patterns is is really not an issue, but it's a kind of a myth. Classical music isn't different from other kinds or better than other kinds because it's more complicated. In fact, it often isn't more complicated. That, that people think it is, is one of the problems. What if I were to say, you know, really the music that I like is, is traditional Hawaiian music, and I think that music is really important, and that people's relationship to traditional Hawaiian music isn't, isn't what it should be or isn't what it used to be. Or maybe I like, I don't know, I like skiffle music. What is so special about classical music that you feel it shouldn't just be seen as maybe a form in eclipse? Well, I think it shouldn't be seen as a form in eclipse because I think that the emotional dramas that it conveys um, are both powerful and still very relevant to those of the wider community. So it is likely to connect to more people than traditional Hawaiian music, which I have absolutely nothing against, uh, more power to it than uh, something which comes out of the experience of a smaller community. So I think the music is, let's not say important. I mean, I think it is important, but that's just me talking. What I want people to take away from this is not that, okay, this music is important and you ought to listen, and, and you know, you're kind of dumb if you don't. What, what I want to say rather is this is a, an extraordinary resource. If you're looking for that sense of emotional drama. If you're looking for a deeper sense of connection to the people that you share the world with, give it a try, because it won't disappoint you. And it's really as simple as that. It's not a matter of what people ought to do. It's a matter of what's available to them. What would you like to see change, sort of, with relation to classical music? First off, I would like to see it once again uh, be a part of the educational system. I think that that's really quite essential. Without support from the education of children, uh, it's going to have a hard time. And then I would like to see the various institutions that uh, are responsible for this music in our culture to continue to do the kinds of things that they've recently begun to do in the way of outreach, um, in the way of connecting with audiences, in the way of making the concert experience less of an intimidating formal ritual and more of a really 
uh, moving collective event. I, I'm not suggesting that people should mob Avery Fisher Hall the way they would at a rock concert, but I am suggesting that tiptoeing around on your best behavior, worshiping at the shrine of the great classics, is a bad thing to do. When you go to a concert, you should be out for pleasure and a sense of community. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is great about New York um, is that particularly in the summer, that, that often happens. They have the Philharmonic gives these concerts in the park, so does the Metropolitan Opera. People turn out in large numbers, sit on the grass, and listen to the music. And some of the spirit of that should, I think, become part of what goes on in the concert halls. Now, as I say, a lot of concert managers and orchestras and chamber groups are, are trying to do just that, um, and I just hope that they succeed. I think that the, the more they try, the more imaginative they become, the more daring they get, uh, the more willing they are to break with established routines, the more success that they're likely to have, which is not to say that the traditional concert should vanish, just that it should become one of many possible alternatives for experiencing this music as a live part of one's engagement with life, the world, and others. Well, Lawrence Kramer, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Lawrence Kramer. His book is Why Classical Music Still Matters, out now from University of California Press. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is also available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing to it or if you're just looking for some more information, click on podcast at our website, WFUV.org. You can also listen online in our audio archives. If you'd like to know more about the music in today's show, or if you have any other comments or questions, you can email us. The address is Conversations at wfuv.org. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.